Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and better discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're finishing the book of Genesis today, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We've done many, many shows on Genesis. We've reached the end of it. Uh, If you're interested in the previous episodes and other books that I've covered, I encourage you to check out the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. On today's show, we're going to finish chapter 50, the second half of it. We'll give concluding comments about the conclusion of Joseph's story and the book of Genesis. And then the last two segments, we'll go back and review and hit the highlights of Genesis as we bring this great, glorious book to a close. Lord, be with us today as we open up your scriptures. Thank you so much for the beauty and the intricacies and the narratives of this wonderful book. We thank you for what it's shown us about you and what it's shown us about all these characters and how we can see ourselves as we look in the mirror. Help us to see you more clearly and what you want from us and for us in the days to come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're at the end of Genesis this week. We've got half of chapter 50 to cover and then a number of concluding remarks as well as a summary of the entire book at the end. We start today in chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So this is a rough and beautiful passage as well. The potential grudge in verse 15, this is 17 years after they've been reunited with Joseph and they're still having trouble with what happened back then and years before, they don't trust Joseph's forgiveness. They believe it's partial or has been faked. He had treated them well, surely, but maybe that was because of their father. Now, independent of Jacob, with Jacob gone, maybe that would go away. With Jacob gone also, Judah would surpass Joseph as the leader in Israel. And maybe this would relieve Joseph, but maybe he would resent it and take it out on them. We also know from chapter 27, verse 41, it seems like in the culture there that it was clear that sons were not allowed to take revenge while their father still lived. So again, with Jacob out of the way, 
maybe Joseph can do what he's always wanted to do, which is kill the brothers. Whatever this is, it's sad, and it points to the difference between reconciliation and attempts to forgive. Joseph has forgiven, but the brothers are still not reconciled. They've not been made right, despite presumably Joseph's best effort, certainly a good faith effort here. There's no trust of him. There's no reconciliation. And so there's a great application for us here. We can extend forgiveness perfectly, but it may not be accepted. Of course, the model for this is God, who extends forgiveness and grace perfectly, but often it's not accepted. But it's one thing for us to extend mercy and forgiveness, and another for how it's interpreted, even when it's done perfectly well. And so they're still living with the guilt. Benjamin seems to be in along for the trip here, which is interesting because he's done nothing wrong. So that's a small aside, but maybe it's the brothers, the other brothers who are really struggling with this. Again, this is a picture of grace. It seems too good to be true, and so they don't embrace it. It seems like a scam or a fake. As with salvation, Joseph here is a type of Christ, and his brothers are a type for our lack of faith and understanding of grace at times. You can imagine this from God's perspective, how frustrating this is. You're forgiven. Quit groveling. You're forgiven. Let's live as reconciled. You're forgiven. Let's live as friends. Let's be on mission. Take the forgiveness that I've offered. Take the grace. So independent of their prosperity, they're still ruled by guilt. And ultimately, this ties to idolatry, making themselves and the past too important. Joseph corrects that perspective, at least from his view, in verses 19 and 20. Probably the funniest version of this was in the earlier episode, chapter 43, verse 18, where they imagine that Joseph wants to steal their donkeys. And we laughed at that at the time and said how ridiculous, how self-centered they were. And that's part of why they're having so much trouble with the guilt and the forgiveness. They can't focus on God. They can't focus on Joseph's forgiveness. They continue to focus on themselves in the past, making it impossible for them to embrace the grace and the forgiveness that Joseph is offering. Joseph's perspective here is interesting that he's likely unable to understand this fully. Maybe it's even frustrating to him, but he powers through that and offers, again, wonderful words throughout this section. But the sadness of, you know, there's just no apparent growth in their relationship to God or to Joseph. And ironically, they're in bondage to guilt and a slave mentality that foreshadows their future slavery in Egypt. So verses 16 and 17 talk about a message from Jacob, and they pass the message along indirectly. So they're choosing an indirect approach here instead of appearing right away before Joseph. But this is almost certainly a lie. Jacob would not have felt the same thing. It's hard to imagine Jacob saying something like this. Jacob probably would have felt that this is what he wanted, but to have expressed it this way, to imagine that the brothers are still struggling, doesn't seem to fit the narrative. So probably a lie that they're putting into their dead father's mouth. Joseph weeps in response to this. I mean, dragging their dad into it, that's a difficult thing, especially if he senses that they're lying out of this desperation. He had failed to convince them before. They just didn't understand. And to think about how they've been hiding their fears for 17 years. I mean, just how pathetic is that? Their response, they send the message and then they appear to Joseph. And it's interesting, that's what Jacob did when he was worried about Esau. 
Verse 18, they bow down and offer to be slaves again. So it's a prophecy fulfilled from the dream back in chapter 37. But again, Joseph is remarkably patient, and we get his last recorded words in verses 19 through 21. Let's look at the pieces of it, and then we'll talk big picture. Verses 19 and 21, don't be afraid or fear not. This is God-like language, usually said by or about God throughout Genesis and the rest of the Bible. So Joseph here playing a God-like role as they've ascribed to him, um, but also as he's living out in, in the grace and mercy and forgiveness that he offers. Verse 19, am I in the place of God? He had seemed like God to them, and he can't do anything about their guilt with God, but he's not going to judge them, in other words. So trust God. He's not going to play God. And you sold me, but God sent me. Same language that he used back in chapter 45, unfortunately not to much effect. Chapter 45, three times he said God sent me in verses 5, 7, and 8. Verse 20, back here in chapter 50, you have God's sovereignty and his control over good and evil. Reminiscent, I think, a bit of Genesis 3 harkens back to that, maybe even resolves it in, in a wonderful way here at the end of the book of Genesis. And then just the awesomeness of verse 20, the same sort of logic and language that Joseph had used back in 45, verse 7. And then finally, the conclusion, mercy and grace in style and substance I will provide for you and your children. Again, he had said this before, but he reiterates it. Now, what do we make of this in total? Cass is a bit dubious and pessimistic about what he sees as a mixed message here. He says he allays their fears, but he does not answer directly their request for forgiveness in verse 17. He says he won't judge them, but he will sustain them like a God. He ignores their reference to Jacob. Cass observes cynically that Jacob no longer figures in Joseph's thought. And as Cass critiqued back in chapter 45 with the initial forgiveness, he sees this as an odd combination of piety and pride. Cass says his response, albeit generous, is also alienating. There is no real reconciliation of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, to the last, holds himself apart. Well, almost to the last. And we'll see that in this last five verses of Genesis. Two other commentators take a more positive view. Carmi says that he's basically going divine here by bringing God into it. He argues that Joseph takes the divine perspective and reframes their story to give his response more power, especially since they didn't feel forgiven by him before. Maybe bringing God into the picture much more directly will help make that point as clear as Joseph can. And then Jonathan Sachs is very impressed here. He says, Joseph takes his brother's words seriously, not because he believes them, but because the very fact that they say this indicates that they are still feeling anxious and guilty. His response is majestic in its generosity. This final scene is the resolution of one of the central problems of the book of Genesis, sibling rivalry. A book replete with tensions, hatred, and competition ends with forgiveness. If brothers cannot live together, how can nations? And if nations cannot live together, how can the human world survive? I don't see a need to choose here between Cass and Sachs. I think it's right that Cass is noting how difficult it is to actually convey and express forgiveness in a way that's accepted. And how do you express forgiveness without coming off as superior. I mean, you're the one who's been wrong. You're the one who's acted better. There's just an inherent tension there. But I also love what Sachs says here about how this resolves Genesis. We've started with sibling rivalry back in Genesis 4, and finally it's been resolved as best as it can be in this world 
with this beautiful moment at the end of chapter 50. All right, verses 22 through 26, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So here in verses 22 and 26, bracketing this passage, we have the death of Joseph at 110. This is the ideal age, at least to Egyptians. And doing the math, this is 50 more years after Jacob's death. Now, verse 23 is an allusion to the fruitfulness, connecting back to Ephraim's name, including Joseph's adoption of Manasseh's kids, and that he gets to live to see his great-great-grandkids. So Joseph only has two children, and we made a point of wondering about that a few chapters ago, but we have this continuing movement to be fruitful and multiply, obeying the commandment of chapter 1, and Joseph's excellence in dominion here as well. His fruitfulness extends to population ultimately through his grandkids. Verses 24 and 25 mentions aid from God, and that's not a good sign that indicates you're going to need help, which means you're probably not in a very good position. So some foreshadowing here of what will show up in the the book of Exodus. 25 and 26, you've got the bones and the embalming, which are revisited from our discussion of Jacob. I don't want to revisit those themes, but you've got the practical matter of, you know, it's just bones versus the intense symbolism of where one's body is is buried. This is finally delivered years later. We read about this in Hebrews 11:22, Exodus 13:19, and Joshua 24:32. He's buried at Shechem along with the other brothers. We're told that in Stephen's martyrdom speech in Acts 7, verse 16. Verse 25, he says to the brothers, "You must carry my bones up from this place." And it's cool that he does ask this and noteworthy that he has to ask. Cass observes about this, Joseph, the self-sufficient man and self-proclaimed savior of his people, must depend on his brothers and their children for a place within the orbit of the covenant. Joseph's mastery over life ends at the grave. Especially compared to last week, this is a very quiet burial. There's no mourning recorded in Israel or Egypt. The brothers are not particularly close, or maybe this is not the Israelite response to death. More ominously, Sarna notes the transition from Jacob's state funeral, which we read last week, chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, to here, Joseph's quiet burial may allude to early deterioration of the Israelites' situation in Egypt. Related to that, why don't they just go to Canaan and bury him now? Joseph seems like he would be interested. It does work as a sign of the promise that God has given, but it also may imply that they're unable to do so even by this early date. Again, verses 24 and 25, God will surely come to your aid and then hints at problems in the future, which may have already started or become obvious. We know from other passages like Acts 7, verse 6, the 400 years of persecution and Exodus 12, 40 and 41 mentions 430 years, which implies that the persecution started relatively early. And so this verse 26 may be a hint that things have already begun to go south. And finally, we have the emphasis on the faithful provision from God in verses 24 and 25. He's looking to the future and the promised land to God 
based on his past deliverances, how he's moved in history, reminiscent of Psalm 105, which is a great reading for today, and 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, about the lessons we're supposed to draw from history, from the past toward the future. Egypt had been good to him, but it was limited, and Joseph surely understands that, at least to some extent here at the end of life. Cass observes, whether because of sad longings or from some other reason, Joseph at the very end of his life turns voluntarily back in the direction of Israel. For one thing, he's underlining that God is the true Savior. He will rescue, lead them out, lead them in, as in the book of Exodus. Joseph is not going to be the one that does that. Two other small hints in the text. Joseph's first mention in the text with the patriarchs is here in verse 24, and then there's no mention of Egypt. Instead, verse 25 alludes to it with the phrase, from this place. Now, this is where the narrative is so sparse, we wonder what's going on. Does Joseph return to faith? Did he always have faith? Is it staring mortality at the end that causes him to return? Maybe he was always reasonably faithful Maybe it's circumstances at the end of life uh, and in Egypt around him causing him to make this term, but one could hardly imagine better words to end the book of Genesis. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We have finished Genesis 50 today, and in this segment, we're going to deal with the ending of the book and the ending of Joseph's narrative here. I think the ending itself, we can take a few different angles on. The first is that the promises of God are present and active, but it seems like a bit of a gloomy ending. Matthew Henry says, thus, the book of Genesis, which began with the origin of light and life, ends with nothing but death and darkness, so sad a change has sin made. Cass observes the last word about Joseph is his mummification in Egypt. The very last word of Genesis is in Egypt. Joseph is in all the important respects a dead end. Alternatively, we can see this as a hopeful ending, particularly when we focus on where Joseph wants his bones to be. Patrick Henry Reardon notes that Joseph's declaration is a prophecy of the Exodus and he takes steps to ensure that his bones would be part of that event. The hurried actions of Passover night included the opening of Joseph's grave in Exodus thirteen nineteen. I don't think we think of that very often. Passover must have been a crazy night, but they're bringing Joseph's bones along with them. And Reardon goes on to talk about the attentive imagination, which is fascinating, by their being born from place to place over the next 40 years as they literally drag Joseph's bones around the wilderness. Reardon continues by noting this is the thing that Joseph has given credit for in the great Hall of Faith chapter 11 in Hebrews verse 22. And Reardon observes throughout Hebrews 11, faith constantly is related to death. Death is the test of faith. These all died in faith, Hebrews eleven thirteen. Reardon notes to the author of Hebrews then, Joseph offered the ideal model of how a Christian should die, clinging in hope to the promise of the exodus. It indicates the hope that our very bodies are destined for passage through the real Red Sea and a final rest in the real promised land. The real exodus is the resurrection. The God who can raise the dead, Hebrews eleven nineteen, has already brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, Hebrews thirteen twenty. Finally, whether one sees it as gloomy and or hopeful, I think it's not with much debate that we say it's an uncertain and unresolved ending. 
Sachs observes that Genesis is a story without an ending, which looks forward to an open future rather than reaching closure. This defies narrative convention, yet that is what the Bible repeatedly does. Normally, we expect a story to create a tension that is resolved in the final page, a sense of completion, but we don't get that here. With Joseph's death in chapter 50, verses 24 through 26, Sachs says, a hope is not realized, a journey is not ended, there's a destination just beyond the horizon. And we see the same sort of thing at the end of Deuteronomy and Malachi as the Old Testament wraps up. And so this points us forward, as Joseph himself says, to the next word. And for Jewish readers, it's interesting that verse 26, the body is put in a coffin. This is literally a box, the same word, Aaron, which is used for the Ark of the Ark of the Covenant. His box is a foil or alternative for the law and its box and points forward to the box that will be so prominent in the next book. A second thing to note here is that in the final recorded words and deeds of Joseph's faith, we note that God had only given him early dreams and interpretations rather than appearing to him as the patriarchs and later Moses and Joshua will receive. In a sense, by his very absence, God underlines his and our trust, faith, hope, and an eternal perspective, a great way to end Genesis. It's much like the book of Esther, where God is not mentioned as being active, but he's clearly active behind the scenes. Patrick Henry Reardon runs with this angle and notes that there are no miraculous events. God does not explicitly enter the story as an actor in Joseph's narrative. He's behind the scenes. God performs his wonders through people. God is certainly active, but the reader never knows exactly how. So this puts a special emphasis on the divine management, as it were, even of sinful activity. And so it's a fine illustration of God's ability to bring good from evil, as Joseph himself points out. The story of Joseph, then, is an account of divine providence and ultimately a great illustration of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love God. Joseph provides a phenomenal picture of a life of walking with God, and it applies to us looking for and seeing God in our own life and in the big picture and in the circumstances of the world around us. All right, a few more comments about Joseph as we start to widen the scope to the rest of Genesis. Leon Wood says, Joseph stands with Abraham as a person to be admired. He was a man of the highest integrity. Few in scripture compare with him for righteous conduct in tempting, trying circumstances. Sold treacherously by his own brothers, he did not react with bitterness or a defeated life of sin. Tempted by a woman of Egypt, he did not deviate from what he knew was right. Betrayed by her so wrongly, he did not become morose and moody when cast into prison. Joseph was also capable. Not only was he given a high position in Egypt, but he was also able to hold it and distinguish himself in it. Joseph remained in high position apparently for the rest of his life. God placed him in this exalted position so that he might prepare the way for Jacob's coming to Egypt. Joseph was God's instrument to bring the family into this fine country where it could grow to the appropriate size for nationhood. And God's plan continues from there. We've seen this throughout Genesis. We had creation in chapters 1 and 2. We had the fall in 3. In chapters 4 through 10, we have Cain and Abel all the way through the flood. In 11, we have the Tower of Babel. And then it begins with Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and finally Joseph and Judah bringing the nation forward. From here, we have Exodus, Joshua, exile of the nation, and eventually Jesus. In a way, it may seem like we're coming full circle. Genesis 12 Abraham leaves home for the promised land. In Genesis 50, Israel finds itself in a foreign land again. 
But as Borgman notes, beginning with Abraham, God will work cooperatively and slowly over entire lifetimes with stubborn humans. God no longer favors unilateral and devastating measures from on high, the flood and Babel. Beginning with Abraham and Sarah, God is faced with the same human insecurities and self-promotion and destroyed relationships that are captured in the Genesis 1-11 through snapshots. This normal way of being in the world is on full display in the four-generation mayhem that makes up the body of the Genesis story. If this family can let go of parochial and self-promoting choices, they will become the people of Israel. And I think we can see that journey for the nation of Israel as manifested through the patriarchs. And of course, it's the same story for us as well in our journeys, our insecurities, our self-promotion, the havoc we get into, the mayhem we cause. But through God's grace, his provision, his spirit, God working with us cooperatively, slowly over entire lifetimes, as Borgman puts it, great things can happen in his kingdom through his spirit, through grace and forgiveness. And finally, a couple of resources that connect Joseph to Jesus. The first, an excellent article by Andrew Wilson in Christianity Today, who draws out a number of parallels. So I'm going to read this at length. He says in Genesis 37, Joseph, like Jesus, is favored by his father, honored in front of his family, and given a vision of the whole of Israel worshiping. This prompts jealousy and hatred from his brothers who conspire to kill him, even as he comes to serve them. Reuben intercedes, as Pilate later will for Jesus, but Joseph is eventually thrown into a pit anyway and sold for pieces of silver through the mediation of Judah, whose name in its Greek form would be Judas. Blood is presented to Joseph's father, the blood of a goat, the animal which makes atonement in Leviticus. The parallels continue in Genesis 39. After he avoids being murdered out of jealousy, Joseph finds safety in Egypt. As he grows older, all that he does prospers because God is with him. He fights temptation and wins. Nevertheless, he is accused of doing something he did not do and is unjustly imprisoned. Throughout his ordeal, we are told the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. In Genesis 40, Joseph is sandwiched between two criminals. One is a baker, a maker of bread. The other is a cupbearer, a server of wine. Joseph prophesies the salvation of one and the death of the other. When they look virtually identical to us, just as Jesus will promise one of the criminals, today you will be with me in paradise. Joseph remains faithful despite suffering injustice. He waits for God to raise him up. When in Genesis 41, Pharaoh says, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? It is the same with Jesus. Joseph is exalted to the right hand of the highest authority. The result is blessing for the world and fulfillment of the promise to Abraham as we find in Jesus. The world comes hungry to Joseph and finds that he is the only one who can provide food that satisfies. In a far greater and more lasting way, we discover the same thing in Jesus, the bread of life. Whatever we make of all this, it is hard to miss the punchline of the Joseph story and the way in which it anticipates the Jesus story. In the last two paragraphs of Genesis, Joseph looks back and says to those who persecuted him, You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, that many should be saved. As Jesus looks back across history, and particularly at his betrayal and crucifixion, he can say the same thing. In the end, God wins. Or as Patrick Henry Reardon puts it more succinctly, Joseph to Jesus, the comparison is amazing. The beloved of his father, sold for a price by his brethren, unjustly accused and imprisoned on false testimony, suffering all with patience, and finally showing mercy towards his oppressors, Joseph's life thus outlined those dramatic days culminating on Calvary. Lord, thank you for Joseph, and of course, thank you for Jesus. What a great story. What a great book. 
Let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Comments and questions are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up our study of Genesis today. It's been a number of weeks, and uh, we're wrapping things up today. We covered the last half of chapter 50 in the first segment. In the last segment, we talked about the end of the story and what this looks like as we analyze Joseph for the last time. And now we want to go back in the last two segments and look at really all of Genesis to wrap up our study. The first question I've got for you is to think about what did we learn from Genesis about the character of God and how he moves? And I think there are three big takeaways, at least for me. The first is God's use of both direct intervention and providence. So we've seen God directly intervene, certainly from creation through his work with Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. But by the time it gets to Joseph, it moves to simply his providence and God moving behind the scenes. And God can do what he wants. Uh, God intervenes directly in obvious ways uh, at times, but the more often than not, at least these days, it's it is going to be indirect intervention. It's through his providence. It's through uh, manipulating circumstances. It's through his spirit, which was not uh, in much evidence in the book of Genesis. So God's intervention, his work in the world, he's not the God of deism. He's not the God uh, that doesn't care. He's a God of relationship. He's a God of, that creates, but he's a God who works with human beings. And second, speaking of human beings, humans here are portrayed as flawed vehicles, and God is willing to work with them. And he also uses difficult circumstances, again, especially with Joseph, but we've seen this throughout the stories of the patriarchs, to transmit God's grace, his love, his faithfulness, and his purpose. And the third big takeaway for me in terms of themes that you see throughout Genesis is that he does this work often through the important relationships of family and siblings. And so we saw this with Noah. We saw it with Adam and Eve. We saw it with Abraham and Sarah, the patriarchs and their wives. We saw sibling rivalry throughout the book of Genesis. And Genesis, from that angle, is in large part about getting family right, getting family right in terms of faith and transmitting the faith, or just at at its base, not killing each other. We saw this with Cain and Abel. We saw it get resolved so beautifully with Joseph and his brothers at the end. But if you can't get family right, you're not going to get a nation right. And so as, as we look forward to Exodus and what it entails, we're feeling pretty good about family from the perspective of how Genesis is wrapped up. The quality of marriages improved slightly, and certainly how the kids are getting along and their ability to transmit the faith we have more optimism about that going forward. So let's spend the rest of our time going all the way back and talking about Genesis from the beginning and highlights, key verses, key concepts that we have seen in our study. If you remember, Genesis divides into four parts, approximately quarters. And if you're trying to memorize certain specific chapter numbers, The first quarter runs from chapters 1 through 11, and this is pre-Abraham. 
So in our 36 weeks of study that we've done in Genesis, we spent 12 weeks on these first 11 chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 are the first two accounts of creation. There's a third account in chapter 5, which is basically a genealogy. But the famous two accounts of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 covering creation. Those run from episodes 29 to 40 of the Word Diet. In episode 29, we talked about Genesis 1-1, and we talked at great length about the topic of evolution, trying to define our terms and coming to grips with what is permissible, biblically, logically, with respect to the big topic of evolution. In episode 30, we covered a little more of, of Genesis 1 and got into the young earth, old earth debate talking a bit about the science and some of the logic, but really focusing on what the text has to offer, both with respect to young earth and probably for many of you making a biblical case for old earth. Two more weeks we spent on chapters one and two, and then we spent two weeks on chapter three with the fall of man. Chapter four got you to Cain and Abel. Chapter five is a genealogy from Seth to Noah. And then chapters 6 through 10, a fairly long passage, the first in the scriptures, covering Noah, the flood, and the post-flood recovery time frame where life gets going again. And then this section concludes with chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Uh, I talked at great length about Nahum Sarna in a lesson that I have titled, you know, things that I learned from Jewish commentators that... Genesis 1 through 11 can be treated differently, right? It is uh, history, it is narrative, but there's some other stuff going on. In particular, there's some polemic against the pagan gods in, uh, in a time frame in which Judaism is emerging. And so it's as if God is talking smack in these first 11 chapters. Uh, and that's another angle that we need to consider we're looking at the book of Genesis, particularly those first 11 chapters. So in episode 40, I talk about that. And then chapter 11 concludes with a genealogy that takes us from Noah to Abraham. So what are the key points, key applications from these first 11 chapters? Well, I've got a bit of a list here. Let's start with the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, that's an absolutely vital thing. Some commentators have said, if you can just believe that first verse, everything else falls into place after that. I don't think it's that easy because a creator God could be a deistic God, right? So it's not sufficient to focus on God's creative powers and the character that he displays through nature. There has to be more revelation than that. And we fortunately find that very quickly as Genesis begins to unfold. Another great verse is chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So we're made in God's image. We spent a lot of time talking about that. We have a Trinitarian God that acts in community. We see that also here in chapter 1, verse 26. And we're made in his image. And so, for example, when God creates from darkness, disorder, uh, and turns that through the Spirit into light, order, and beauty, that's what we're supposed to do as well. We're called to empower people uh, as God empowers us. So there's many lessons. We talked about this when we talked about Genesis 1, 26, 
uh, back in those first few episodes of Genesis 1 through 11. And then the text continues down to verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And this is the so-called creation mandate and the first of the things to which mankind is called. If God created everything, God wants us to participate in that creation, which involves creative activity, which involves maintaining and extending what God has created. This idea of dominion, sometimes we imagine that means lording it over people, but in Genesis, especially in the New Testament, that's redefined in God's kingdom as servant leadership and those sorts of things. And so, Uh, dominion, creation, blessing, fruitful, multiply. Those are the sort of things that are in the initial call to Adam, which is extended, of course, to us. Chapter 2 of Genesis brought a few huge pairs of terms that help us understand who we are and what God wants from us. The first is breath and dust, that Adam is created from the dust, but he's injected with the breath of God. And so we, too, are both dust and and breath. And the implications of that are tremendous. We're both earthy and spiritual. We have this connection to the animals, and yet we're something different than that. The other pairing in chapter two is the emergence of kingdom work and marriage. Often we imagine that marriage is the first institution, and it does appear early in the narrative in Genesis 2, but before marriage, Adam is actually given kingdom work to do. And so that's our first calling. Our kingdom work often involves marriage and family, but our first priority is to follow the creation mandate, is to create as we have been created, it's to do work in the great and good universe that God has put us in, and that's very clear from the beginning in chapter 2. Of course, chapter 3 is loaded. This is the fall of mankind. You've got original sin in all of its troubles. You've got the silence of Adam. And so really in those first six verses, we spent an entire episode on that because there's just so much rich material on that. What was the original sin? We don't know. Was it Adam's failure to teach Eve properly? Uh, Was it the legalism that Eve repeats? We're not sure. I think the most noteworthy sin in the, in the list of sins that get things going in chapter 3 is the silence of Adam. And we talked about this. I quoted Larry Crabb at that point, that God speaks, and that's what does all the creating in chapter 1, creating light, order, and beauty out of darkness and chaos. But ironically, it's Adam's silence, his failure to speak, which reverses the process, takes light, order, and beauty of God's good creation, and turns it back toward darkness and chaos. So the silence of Adam... And to this day, the violence and the silence of men are the two big sins that men wrestle with. The ironic passivity that men often illustrate can trace its roots back to Adam's silence in chapter 3, verse 6. From there, we've got the blame game, Adam blaming the woman and God, and Eve blaming the devil. And there's just not quite the ownership of the sin that you would hope for not much in terms of confession and repentance. This leads to a variety of deaths, including hundreds of years down the line, eventually physical death, but all sorts of separation occurs in the garden as original sin comes in, economic trouble, psychological, sociological problems all enter with original sin. 
Fortunately, right from the beginning, we have our first messianic reference, chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so sin enters in Genesis 3, but right away, God's already ready with grace and mercy as prophesied through the person of Jesus. And so in chapters 3 and then later in chapter 9, we have judgment from God, but also this mercy and grace. Even with the terrific sin of chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We think things are tough now, but that's not as rough as Genesis 6, 5. But God is still merciful and gracious within his judgment. In these opening chapters, we saw trouble with marriage and family, uh, trouble with chapter 3 where Adam and Eve are on the same page, Cain and Abel with Cain killing Abel, Noah not getting off the boat properly with his family and reordering the family like he's supposed to do in chapter 8 verses 16 and 18. And so the family troubles will continue to be an issue throughout Genesis and finally resolve relatively well by the end of this great book. And the last thing that always strikes me, we covered in episode 38, the greatness of Noah, but the much greater greatness of Abraham, that Noah was a great man, righteous, but only able to save his family, where Abraham will do so, so much more than that. And it was not until I read the Jewish commentators that I understood how much greater Abraham was than Noah. Noah's still a great man, but Abraham does so much more in God's economy. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up Genesis today. We've been on it for 36 episodes and coming to an end by doing a quick recap of some of the key moments. We want to get now to Genesis 12 through 25, which is the second quarter, and it's focused on the story of Abraham. We covered this in episodes 40 through 49, so 10 episodes in total. Chapter 12 was the great call to leave, and then Abram and Sarai are in Egypt. Chapter 13 is Abram and Lot. Chapter 14 is Abram and Melchizedek. That's a memorable story. Chapter 15, the covenant between God and Abraham. 16 has Hagar and Ishmael. 17 as circumcision. We talked about how fatherhood is redefined in that episode. 18 and 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah. 20 is Abimelech. 21 is the birth of Isaac. And then 22 is a terrible and wonderful story where he's called to sacrifice Isaac and the bondage of Isaac. That uh, doesn't end up being a sacrifice, of course. Chapter 12, 1 through 3 is probably the highlight for me right at the beginning of this section. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This dual blessing is, just blows me away every time I think about it, that this is our commission from one angle to be blessed by God and then to be a blessing to God and to others. And that is one way I think about how I want to live my daily life. I've been blessed by God. And what does it look like for me to bless him and others with the choices that I make all day long? The leave and go part is amazing. Leaving one culture, going to another, and then just 
broadly Abraham's amazing faith. I mean, it's illustrated in chapter 12, but it's described in chapter 15, verse 6, in a verse that is quoted quite often in the New Testament, that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. There's other amazing stories here. You've got chapter 13 with Abram deals with Lot and the land and just how magnanimous Abram is with his nephew. The slippery slope for Lot as he gets closer and closer to Sodom, that's a very sobering set of observations. The means and the ends and the birth of the promised one. Remember that God had promised that Abram would have a son and they're not sure exactly what that means. And so both he and Sarah are okay trying to have a child with Hagar. And it's not till later that God comes back and says, no, it's Sarah who's going to be the mother of that child. And so just wrestling with means and ends, right? We may know what God wants, but the means and the timing are also crucial issues. The greatness of Abraham, I mentioned this in the last segment, and how he learns about justice, how he argues with God. He's not just about saving his family. He's actually willing to argue with God to save uh, a city like Sodom. It's just amazing. Chapter 18, verse 19 says, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And there's this instruction piece of it, that God's working with Abraham to be a greater man and one who's already shown his willingness to defend other people, to be magnanimous to Lot, to be willing to extend his inheritance through Eliezer. To go to bat for Sodom and Gomorrah, though, is just uh, great stuff and the sort of thing that we should emulate. We talked about how Abraham learns to value Sarah through his painful interactions with Pharaoh and especially Abimelech. And then, of course, the awesome ending in chapter 22, the climax of his story, not the ending, but the climax of the story with his willingness to sacrifice and the lessons to be learned there. Sometimes God does call us to sacrifice, but he always wants us to be willing to sacrifice things that should not be put before him, even a promised child. The third quarter of the book of Genesis is, roughly speaking, Genesis 22 through 36, the life of Isaac, but it mostly has a focus on Jacob. We talked about this in episodes 48 through 56. You've got chapter 22, which is Isaac on the chopping block. 23 is the death and burial of Sarah. 24 is finding Rebekah, his wife. 26, once married, he has another encounter with Abimelech, much like his dad did. But then the narrative turns mostly to Jacob. Chapters 25 and 27, you've got Jacob and Esau wrestling over the birthright and the blessing. Jacob, of course, flees after those events and is given a vision of a ladder to heaven in chapter 28. Jacob, away from home for 20 years, he encounters Laban. Uh, and ends up marrying Leah and Rachel and has a bunch of kids. That's chapters 29 through 31. On the way back, he wrestles with God. So that's paralleling the Jacob's Ladder story, but the wrestling with God in chapter 32 is probably the climax of his story. 33, Jacob and Esau are reunited. 34 is one of those overlooked stories that has a lot to offer uh, for the 
the future of the history of Israel, Simeon and Levi going up against the Shechemites in an R-rated episode. And then 35 and 36 is the wrap-up, the death of Rachel and Isaac, and a list of Esau's descendants, which clears the table for the final quarter of Genesis, which is Jacob's sons in particular, Joseph and Judah. What are the lessons here that are key? Again, we're back to the question of means and ends here in obtaining the promised blessing. Rebecca has been told that Jacob is the son by which the blessings will be extended, but we don't know enough from the text to know exactly what's going on here, except that Isaac is not completely on board. We also know that Jacob and Rebecca are willing to do some eh, slightly unsavory things to acquire the promised blessing. And so again, we're back to the question of means and ends. When do we take things into our own hands and when should we patiently wait on God? Whatever one thinks of that angle, the bottom line for Esau is that he just really doesn't care very much about the things of God. He wouldn't mind the material blessing of being the firstborn child and the double financial blessing, material wealth, but he's not interested at all in the birthright. He sells it voluntarily for a bowl of soup. The writer of Hebrews, in a great verse, in a, in a staggering verse, chapter 12, verse 16, describes Esau as godless for this reason. He is godless. He's, he's a good guy. He's probably a better guy than Jacob is, but he's not interested in the things of God. And one of the lessons that can be drawn from this is that God can work with Jacob as much as a mess that, as he is. At least God can work with that because Jacob cares. Jacob is interested. Jacob is passionate. Jacob wants the things of God, even if he doesn't fully understand them or pursues them improperly. But how do you work with an Esau who doesn't care about the things of God? And I think about my unbelieving friends that don't want to be at church or aren't interested in God at this point, and some of them imagine they're going to heaven. But if you don't care about the things of God now, if you don't want to be around God's people now, why would you want to be in heaven for eternity? And that's really the spot that Esau's in. Good guy. He's the guy that I'd rather have babysit my kids over Jacob, but he's not interested in the things of God. And unless that changes, there's no relationship with God. Another thing we see in this section is parental favoritism and influence and the generational sin from Abraham in dealing with Abimelech. So we start to see some ripple effects from Abraham forward, from Isaac forward, as generational sin, the influence of one generation on another, starts to play itself out. Chapters 29 and 30, we have Leah and Rachel, the marriage and the children, some really poignant chapters in there as Jacob gets the population blessing going, but man, what a crazy household that would have been. Jacob's journey is another key thing here. Uh, climaxes in that wrestling with God in chapter 32, but just seeing his growth from someone grasping at the things of God to someone who is receiving direct interventions from God in visions, chapter 28 with the latter, chapter 32, the wrestling with God, just seeing Jacob's growth and trying to figure out what that looks like through the sparse narrative, I think, is one of the highlights of this section. And then finally, in what seem almost like afterthoughts, the story of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi disowning themselves, proving to Jacob and to the reader why they cannot lead the family going forward. The first three sons are the oldest. Culturally, they would be the leaders, but they're not fit for leading Israel 
into the next phase. That falls to Judah, who is son number four of Leah, and Joseph, who is the first son of Rachel. All of that leads to the fourth quarter of this great book. So that's chapters 37 through 50. In terms of podcast episodes, we covered that in episodes 57 through 64. Early on, it's a series of one-chapter vignettes. Chapter 37, Joseph sold into slavery. Chapter 38, we have a bit of a break uh, with the vital Judah and Tamar story. Chapter 39, we go back to Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Chapter 40, he's in prison. Chapter 41, he gets out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And then the pace of the narrative begins to pick up. Chapters 42 through 45 is Joseph and his brothers uh, and the complex reunion that Joseph establishes there. And then chapters 46 through 50, the book wraps up with Israel, i.e. Jacob, but Israel the nation coming to Egypt as the book wraps up. What are the key lessons in the last quarter? Again, God's providence, rather than direct intervention in this last quarter, and we keep reading that Joseph had the Lord with him and how comforting that would be. So even though God's not as active, God's presence is still behind the scenes as active as ever. We also see Joseph's faith despite suffering and the great integrity that he shows in the face of temptation and the allure of worldly power. The highlight for me on this is chapter 39, verse 9, when Joseph's trying to reason with Potiphar's wife, and he says, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And I love the trio of answers that he gives here, that it's beneath him. It would hurt him to sin in this way. It would hurt his gracious boss, and it would hurt his great God, and he's simply not going to do it. Other points, we've seen scheming throughout Genesis, uh, particularly with Jacob, but Joseph, in a sense, redeems that as he works out his strategy to figure out whether his brothers have changed or not. We also see guilt and forgiveness, uh, and particularly when Joseph bases it on his faith. Chapter 45 and chapter 50, he keeps saying, God sent me, and he roots the moments in God's plan and God's sovereignty. Chapter 45, verse 7, chapter 50, verse 20. But we also saw how the guilt and the forgiveness cannot easily be overcome many times, that despite Joseph's willingness to forgive, there's a difference between extending grace and actually receiving it, and the brothers have a very difficult time receiving it. One of the big themes is underrated, I think, by Christian commentators, but a big deal obviously going forward to Exodus is the challenge of separation rather than assimilation. And Israel's going to need to stay separate. They can do that in Egypt because Egypt detests them. But Joseph represents this tension between being in Egypt and being of Egypt. And so the counter to Joseph ends up being Judah, who learns and exhibits the Hebrew word teshuva, that he becomes the first penitent in that wild story in chapter 38. We also see Judah's growth and his leadership, and he emerges to be the one that ultimately leads Israel going forward, both as a man and as a tribe. And so as we came to the end of Genesis, it ended up being a contest of sorts between Judah and Jacob and Joseph. In other words, between a worldview of Israel centered on God and a, a world and a nation like Egypt, with Joseph caught in the middle. Where will Israel go from here? Well, that's the book of Exodus, and that's where we're going next. 
So catch those previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Hope you'll catch us next week as we start the book of Exodus on The Word Diet.